Lord, oftentimes when we read your scriptures, we forget that we're reading, especially in the New Testament, something that was written from a prison. We forget that. There are different kinds of prisons. There are, uh, there are literal prisons, and uh, nobody wants to be there. Sometimes that's where men find themselves. They're also prisons of circumstances that we absolutely don't want to be in and we wish we could break out of the circumstances. But we can't. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of us are in circumstances that if we could get out of them, well, there'd be nothing greater. We've got guys that are in uh, circumstances of physical pain they wish they could get out of, circumstances of uh, financial difficulty, circumstances where they're out of work, and they've been out of work for a while, And it's not looking a whole heck of a lot better. Other guys are in situations where there's been uh, a betrayal by a friend or a spouse or a co-worker. All kinds of circumstances we wish we could just bust out of. These men in Scripture that wrote from jail, they were just guys like us. I mean, they had all the emotions we have and all the frustrations, and they're just, they're just human all the way to the core. And for some reason, you, um, for some reason, you work through circumstances we wish we could get out of. And inevitably, Lord, we're not there by by chance. Uh, We know that because you control all things. I would pray tonight that in the circumstances that we would like to change, that at the same time, we might understand that... uh, You're able to change us as we're in the midst of circumstances we don't want to be in. So we pray for ourselves, and we ask for help, and we ask for mercy, and we ask for grace, and we ask for wisdom, and we ask for discernment. We ask you to give us guidance. We ask you to direct our steps. Some of us literally don't know what to do next. It's just not clear. We're, we're really baffled by where we are. But, but you, you said in Psalm 32, you said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And there's some of us here tonight, and, and we desperately need that counsel to take the next right step. We don't want to just take a step because we've done that before and taken wrong steps. We need wisdom to take the right step. We need the mind of Christ is what we need. So we would ask that you would give that to us. We're very needy, Lord. We don't like to admit that, but we are. Every single one of us, we are needy. And we're reminded that apart from you, we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. So we're grateful that we have you. I I, I guess it's more accurate to say we're grateful that you have us and that we belong to you. A lot of us came into your kingdom kicking and screaming, as C.S. Lewis said. Really didn't have any interest. But as C.S. Lewis said after years and years of struggling, when he got into his brother's sidecar attached to that motorcycle... 
and they were on their way to town. When he got into the sidecar, he wasn't a Christian, and he wasn't a believer. But when they got into town, he got out of the sidecar, and he was. And you did that work in his life and in his heart in about a six-mile stretch. And he was sort of astounded. That's how we are. Uh, We belong to you. We are dependent on you. That's why we're here tonight. We ask you to instruct us. We ask you to teach us. By your spirit, we ask that. And in Jesus' name, we request it. Amen. Well, over the years, we have had many discussions in here about In-N-Out Burger. And we've got some guys in here that are huge fans of In-N-Out Burger. A few weeks ago, one of the guys back here gave me a cup from In-N-Out Burger. I was a little disappointed because it was empty, but, but it was a cup. And you know, that's a chain in California on the bottom. They have the cups, they got John 3.16. And, and Bob's here somewhere. I just saw him. There's Bob. And, and Bob uh, gave me a T-shirt, In-N-Out T-shirt and, and an In-N-Out hat. And, you know. So if you've ever been in and out you, you know what we're talking about. Um, in, in, in the book of Titus, and that's where we are, in chapter 3, the reason I bring up hamburgers is this. As I've been looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, uh, believe it or not, I think we've got a theological hamburger on our hands. To have a hamburger, you need at least three parts. You need, you need a bun, but the bun has got to be sliced, therefore you've got two parts. So you got the top part of the bun, you got the bottom part of the bun, and then in between, you got the meat. There's no meat, you don't have a burger. Was it Wendy's that did that commercial for years and years? Where's the beef? And you've all had that experience of maybe going to a barbecue or going to some place and order a hamburger you haven't been before, and you got these huge buns, and then you take a bite, and you're thinking, where the heck's the beef here? We need a little beef to have a hamburger. As we read uh, verses 1 through 8, I want you to be on the lookout. Well, let's just read them, and then I'm going to come back and show you three critical pieces for this theological hamburger. Uh, Paul talking to young Titus, who was setting, his assignment is to set in order what remains in these uh, churches in Crete. If you've been with us, you know that Crete is, uh, is an island in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Greece. Um, uh, these people, the, the culture, they are, they are known for their greed. They're known for their deceit. They're known for their lying. They're known for their uh, self-centeredness. Uh, it is a reprobate culture. And Paul has established a church, churches, and it's Timothy's assignment to follow up after Paul and set in order what remains, appoint elders, and get some leadership going in these churches so that they can have a witness as they live differently from those who are around them. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he says to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable 
for men. Now, in that passage we just read, three times he mentions deeds. Three times. First time is in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Now, throughout Titus, he's been talking about the importance of good deeds. It's many places throughout this little book. But in this section, verses 1 through 8, the first time he mentions it is verse 1. I want to submit to you, that's that's the top section of the bun. Then jump down to verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds. Well, wait a minute. He's been talking about good deeds. Yeah, but he saved us not on the basis of deeds. There's a second mention of deeds. And then in verse 8, he says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Uh, Verse 8 is the bottom part of the bun. Verse 5 is the beef. It's the half-pound Angus burger. So 1 is the top layer of the bun. 8 is the bottom layer of the bun. Verse 5 is the, uh, is the meat. When you start talking about deeds and Christianity, it can get a little bit confusing. Because most people, their view of God and their view of life, and you've, how many times have you heard this? Is, is that at the end of your life, what God does is that God takes your good deeds and God takes your bad deeds. And God puts them in the scale. And what you're hoping is that the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, you're going to heaven. That's kind of the American view of how God works. The problem with that is the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. You guys remember the first time you changed a number two diaper? (laughs) To me, that's the test of manhood. I've met guys who have uh, ascended Everest without oxygen. Big deal. I think until you can change a number two diaper without throwing up, you're not a man. Now, I will tell you this. When Rachel was born, I managed to go four months, maybe five. It was at least four months before I ever changed a number two diaper. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget the afternoon, Mary, she said, Steve, can we talk for a second? And I said, sure. And we sat down on that brown couch, and she said, Steve, I've noticed something I just wanted to mention to you. I go, yeah. She said, "Um, you know, Rachel needs her diapers changed. I said, sure. (laughs) She said, but I have noticed that there is a particular kind of diaper that you never change. And I said, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we had a little talk about that. I don't like number two diapers. As far as I'm concerned, they're a bunch of crap. (laughs) And they are. Here's the problem with the, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Your good deeds, your good deeds are just a pile of... um, yeah, crapizo. I think it says in the Greek text, doesn't it? Actually, I just made that up. But it, it, uh, hey, your best, you, the best you've ever done before God, yeah, it's just a pile of crud. Just a number two stinking diaper that nobody wants to touch. You say, well, wait, but, well all right, so wait a minute. So then that's not, that's not it. No, that's not it. The, the, the problem is, and, and see, this is where sometimes we get into the Scriptures and people get confused. Because we read about good deeds in Titus. But, but, but see, you've got to have a context for good deeds. If you don't have the beef on good deeds, you're going to misunderstand the whole point. He mentions good deeds in verse 1. He mentions 
good deeds in verse 8. But if you miss what he says about good deeds in verse 5, you've missed the whole thing. And really what we need to do is pick it up in verse 4. Now, now with the, in fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick it up again in verse 1. And we're going to read it quicker this time. But I, I want, you got the distinction now? Watch this. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lesson pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, but, see, here is the key. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You guys have been ever pulled over by a cop and he didn't give you a ticket? That's called mercy. He didn't give you what you deserved. You deserved a ticket. You're wrong. You're guilty. But when he says those blessed words that come from heaven above, I'm just going to give you a warning. Those are great words. Because you have just been the recipient, not of justice, if you got justice, you'd be out 380 bucks or so, which you never pay on time, therefore it's $9,000. <laughs> you didn't get justice, you just got mercy. You got what you didn't deserve. See, the best you can present are filthy rags. That's the best you got to offer, and instead of giving you justice for the filthy rags, he pardons us. He's full of mercy. He's full of mercy. <sighs> by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus is God. Jesus went to the cross. You know, the Christmas thing and the manger thing and all that. But a lot of people don't get is that that little baby in the manger, you know, the star, you know, led the shepherds and the whole thing? The baby in the manger created the stars. He didn't start existing in the manger. He's existed forever. He's created the whole thing. He's God in the flesh. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't write the check. So what did he do? He doesn't have filthy rags. He is perfection. He's without sin. So he came, went to the... See, this is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. He came, went to the cross, paid for your sin, paid for my sin. And when we trust in him alone, it's not Jesus plus candles. It's not Jesus plus um, confirmation when you're 12. It's not Jesus plus my grandpa was a preacher. It's not Jesus plus I know all the words to just as I am. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's Jesus alone. I meet people all the time and they think baptism saves them. I've met people, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. Great. Great. Good for you. That doesn't save you. But to hear them talk, you think water was their savior. Water's not the savior. Water didn't go to the cross and die for your sins, right? Jesus is the savior. Now, was baptism in the scripture? Absolutely. It, it's, uh, in the scripture, baptism is the public testimony that your father on Christ. You know, in the, you know in, the, in the book of Acts, these guys would come to the Lord, they didn't run them to a 12-week class on baptism. 
Have you noticed that? In the, in the book of Acts, what did they do? The guy says, well, what, what, what did Philip say to the, uh, um, the guy in the chair, the Ethiopian, um, uh, I can't even say the word, it scares me, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch? He, he gave him the gospel, and the guy says, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, you've got to take a 12-week course. He didn't say that. Nothing. So he baptized him. But water isn't the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Right? So it didn't happen when you were two or this or that. It's Christ, and it's Christ alone. He's our Savior. Uh, what's the washing of regeneration? Our hearts, hey, listen, we're, we're, we're spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead. We have no interest in God And what he does is he comes in and regenerates us. He makes us alive. We've said this in here many times. But what regeneration is, is that the Lord did for us what he did for Lazarus. It's what's outlined in Ephesians chapter 2 when it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then it goes on and talks about the fact that he made us alive. Jesus made Lazarus alive, didn't he? He made him alive. And we've talked about Lazarus. You know the story. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was dead. How could Lazarus hear Jesus? How did dead guys hear? The answer is not real well. Jesus gave him life so that... He could hear and respond. That's regeneration. He comes into our hearts and makes us alive so we can say, yes, Jesus, come into my life. If we're not regenerated, we're not going to say that. Very interesting. And when we're regenerated, we're washed of our sin. That's the gospel. The gospel is good news. Is this not good news? It's pretty darn good news. Okay, that's the beef, that's the half-pound Angus burger. If you just, see, that's what makes the distinction when it comes to good deeds. Now, because Christ has come into our lives, he has saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, but on what he has done. So it's of mercy, it's of grace, completely and totally. He's come in and changed my life. Now, because he has changed my life internally, and he's given me eternal life, Now he wants it to come out in my behavior, and I should be living differently than I lived before I came to know Christ. Does that make sense? It makes all kinds of sense. So let's read 3.1 again. Remind them. Who? The believers who have come to know Christ through grace and mercy. Remind them now, and what he's going to say is remind them to be good citizens. The Cretans were not good citizens. Remind them to be subject to rulers. Uh, well, well, and then he says, uh, to authorities. Our culture is anti-authority. You want to see anti-authority? Go to Berkeley, California. Go to Eugene, Oregon. Go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go to Madison, Wisconsin. They hate authority. God institutes authorities. You know what he's saying here? He said, be subject to rulers. Why? Because if you read Romans 13, God has put authorities over us. You know what that means? You don't run a red light. That red light has authority over you. And God has instituted the authority. If you're driving down the road and a cop comes up behind you and he turns his lights on, you pull over because he has authority over you. You say, well, people in authority don't always think, do things right. No, they don't. They absolutely do not. Well, so what do you do? What, 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 I mean, what do you do? What do you mean, be subject to rulers? Uh, are, are, you know what? We're very fortunate because we live in a country where we have the right to vote and we have the right to express our opinion. And if we don't like rulers, we can put in our say and get new rulers. Not everyone has a country like that. When you're under somebody's authority, a lady recently asked me, she was telling me a situation about her husband, and she said, well, I want to submit to him. I said, absolutely, but you never follow his authority into sin. 
See, that's where the scripture draws the line. Do you remember in the book of Acts when they, when they pulled Peter and those guys in and they said, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus? And what did Peter and, was it, was, who was it, Silas or Barnabas? I can't remember. Peter and his sidekick said, Kanto, I think was his name. I, I can't remember right now. But, but Peter said, hey, you ju- what do you mean we can't preach in the name of Jesus? And these guys were the authorities. You judge for yourselves whether we should obey you or God. When the government says to us, disobey the word of God, we obey God. Because the government or the authority is out of control and out of submission. You never follow authority into sin. So your boss says, uh, oh yeah, I know that expense account's not right, but go ahead and sign it anyway. What do you do? You don't do it. You say, well, there might be consequences. Oh, no, the, no, there will be consequences. And so in the book of Acts, they got whipped. You see? But does this make sense? Now, fortunately, we don't have this a lot in our country. Not yet. It's coming. Uh, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, uh, to be ready. Watch this. For every good deed. Why? No, was he saying good deeds so you'll be saved? No, you're already saved. Christ has come into your life. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, when it says gentle, does it mean you're a wuss all the time? Yes, it does. I'm sorry, guys. But you get to, you're, you, Christ comes into your life, and you've got to be a wuss. And I see a lot of you out there. You're doing well. No, I'm kidding. What am I saying? You know, we get weird sometimes in Christianity. What does it mean to be gentle? Well, most of the time we're gentle, but sometimes... And, 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 and you know what? Nobody wants to confront anymore. But sometimes you've got to confront. Yeah, but the Word of God says be gentle. And in the same context, if you look it down in verse 9, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they un- are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man, or divisive, some translations say. You heard about uh, the, the group broke up in the factions? They broke up in the divisions. Reject a, watch this. Reject a factious man. Reject a divisive man in the church after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Then you look back at um, uh, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1 of Titus. He says, for this reason, reprove them severely. We say, well, how does that work with being gentle? Well, there's a time to be gentle, Right? In other words, you don't walk around, you're not Joe Hard Guy, you're not a gunfighter, you're not a gunslinger, you're not looking for a fight. Normally, you're easy to get along with. But there are times when you got to stand up and do the hard thing. You see how that makes sense? And guys that are feminized never step up and do the right thing. Because we've been raised in this concept that, well, if you're a Christian, you're just, you're a wuss. No. No, God's called you to be a man. You see? So you understand. You, you get it. Yeah. It's pretty clear. Makes sense. Now, now, because Christ has changed me, it ought to change how I live and the kind of citizen I am and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, now look at verse 3. For we, want, we also once were foolish yourselves. We didn't know the Lord. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind, kind appeared. He saved us. That changed everything. Not on the basis of deeds I've done. See, are you guys getting this? He's changed my life. Now it's going to come out in my behavior. I'm not going to live the same way. And he's going to emphasize it in verse 8. Here's the bottom part of the bun. Look at verse 8 here. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Not to be saved. You're already saved. But to live out the life of Christ. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become the authoritarian leader of all. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must be what? You must be a servant who changes number two diapers. See, when Mary had that talk with me that day, I was a young pastor. 
I thought I was doing pretty well spiritually. But I wouldn't change a number two diaper. Well, there's not, I didn't, you know what? You need to learn how to change a number two diaper. You need, you need to learn how to do that. One of the great things about having children is that they have no interest in serving you. <laughs> do you see how good deeds works here? Let me show you Mark chapter 2. Here's an example of how the good deeds work. Mark 2. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. Man, when they hear that Jesus is in town, there's no quiet and there's no peace. Right? I mean, it's a rock concert. Let's get to, he's in town. Let's go see him. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So there's a crowd. I I mean, it's just jam-packed. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd. This is great. I love this story. They removed the roof above him. These guys weren't feminized. These guys were aggressive. They wanted their buddy to see Jesus. Buddy's paralyzed. They they can't get in. So so what do they do? I mean, it it doesn't give us all these, but just imagine what they had to do. Somebody said, you know what? There's got to be a ladder around here somewhere. So they went and found a ladder. And they got this guy in a pallet. And, he, and this guy can't move at all. So four guys are trying to get this guy up a ladder. So it took a little bit of, you know, muscle and sweat. And, you know, they're trying the crowd and people saying, what are you guys doing? What, what, hey, hey, what are you doing? Get out of the way. And they get their buddy up on the roof. Jesus is down there teaching. And these suckers start busting through the roof. And then they bust open the roof. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, see, they knew if they could just get him to Jesus. Right? And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. There's the meat. That was mercy. That was grace. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Precisely. Precisely. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, like it says back in Titus 3, so that you might know that. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately. This guy is paralyzed. This guy can't move. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, you always see Jesus saying, uh, telling people to do what they can't do. You don't say to paralytics, get up. That's cruel, unless you're God. Get up. Oh, and by the way, I'm giving you the power to get up. What does he say? Uh, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And they never had. Uh, those four buddies of his, they'd been touched by Jesus. And because they'd been touched by Jesus, you know what they were doing? They were, going, they were doing good deeds for their buddy. Isn't that interesting? We've been doing this Bible study come April 1st, seven years. That's hard to believe. 
I was 19 when I started teaching. That. <laughs> and um, we used to meet upstairs. How many of you guys used to, were with us when we met upstairs in, in that room up there? Yeah, that's where we used to be. And when we first got started, you know, guys would, we had guys coming in there. And, uh, and we were there a while, and then we came down here. And, and there was one guy that I remember, I remember the first time I saw him. He was sitting in the back, and uh, he had trouble walking into the room. He, but he had a buddy, and, and we were upstairs, and, and he couldn't have gotten up the stairs by himself. So he had a buddy that helped him get up the stairs and get into the room. And, you know, guy was always at the study with his buddy. And then uh, years went by, and there was a point where I remember the first time they wheeled him into the room. And I remember going outside, and I saw the Suburban pull up, and all these guys come piling out of the Suburban, and they're uh, getting him into his chair, and they, they're wheeling him in. Now, most of you guys know that I'm talking about Paul Lanier, our buddy Paul. Last Friday, Jesus said to Paul, get up. And Paul went to be with Jesus last Friday. And Paul is healed. That's the truth. He's been healed. And when I was looking at this passage, um, Monday afternoon at Paul's uh, memorial service, Way over a thousand people there. And it was quite a service. The Lord was really honored. Um, but you know, over the years, over the years, uh, I've seen some guys around Paul. And every time those guys roll him in here, and for a long time, Paul would sit right back there. And then about a year ago, he was having. Was it a year ago, guys, or six months ago? Anyway, there was a point where I looked up, and he wasn't there, but he was back here, and he was having trouble breathing and congestion and all that. So he was back there. But whenever I'd see these guys wheel Paul in, you know what I'd think about? I'd think about the four guys letting their buddy in through the roof to see Jesus. These guys... We're picking up Paul, getting him in the suburban, getting him in his chair so he could come here and hear about Jesus and hear the word of Jesus. And here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, I've asked his buddies to be here tonight. Uh, some of them spoke at the uh, memorial service on Monday. But there were some pieces to the story about Paul that I didn't know. And uh, it, it fits in perfectly with this passage in, in ways that I didn't realize. So I'm going to start with Dave Turtletop. Dave, can you come up here, please? Um, Dave is the guy who actually helped Paul write the book. And um, Dave, you, tell us the history about... You, you and Paul come to the Bible study just real quick. How that, how that happened? Well, it, it began when I first heard about the Bible study and you uh, going to be uh, t teaching here. And so. And you came anyway. <clears throat> it's amazing what the Holy Spirit will do. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and you were obedient. It's amazing. And so uh, uh, I, I suggested to Paul that we, that we come and listen. And, uh, and, and so we did. And at that at that stage of his disease, uh, Paul could still walk, and, um, and we did go up the stairs, as you say. And um, now, now, before this, let me just throw something in. Sure. Paul was a medical doctor. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was. He was a weightlifter. Correct. He was a pilot. Yes. Yeah, pretty active guy. Had it all. Had, had a great career, beautiful family. Wonderful wife, three loving daughters. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's just what all of us would aspire to, and uh, and he had all that going on. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, in July of 1998 was when he was diagnosed with ALS, and, um, and that changed his flight plan. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't shortly after that, or, or almost immediately after that, that uh, at a prayer meeting at, uh, at a friend's house, I remember my wife saying to me, you know, did you hear about Paul? Yeah, his ALS diagnosis, yeah. Well, there's going to be a prayer meeting next week. I think, think we should go, and like, what do you say? No. <laughs> you know, yeah. so... I, so sure. I went, even though yeah. Paul and I really didn't have much of a relationship at all at that time, just yeah. kind of to say hello. Yeah. And uh, Paul had a way of drawing you in. Yeah. And, uh, and it did with me. And so, yeah, seven years ago, we started coming here and um, uh, kept on coming. Yeah, you guys were very faithful. And uh, I remember the night you guys invited me, because you guys would always go to Sonic afterwards. I re- you guys invited me, and I remember, you know, sitting in the back seat and talking to Paul, and, he, and, and Paul was losing his ability to articulate. It was real hard to understand him. But uh, he said something to me that really blew me away about the benefit of God allowing that disease to come into his life. And you mentioned this the other day at the memorial service. Yes. Because uh, I think he had it in the book as well. He did. A um, couple things. I'll let you take that. Well, sure. Yeah. Um, using Paul's name as an acronym, I talked about um, four lessons I learned from Paul. I learned many more than that, but um, the piece stood for parents. His parents had a huge influence on him and uh, uh, raised him up the right way right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Paul's... Um, uh, talked about Paul's mom because she lost her husband just a year ago to Alzheimer's, and then Paul last week to uh, to Lou Gehrig's disease. So talked about that. Talk, the A stood for adoration, and uh, that's where mm-hmm. I talked about what you're mentioning. And Paul mentions this in the book. He, you know, what, what I said was he, he adored his family, uh, but he also adored three other people. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the book, uh, Paul writes, and he meant this, that um, he was far better off with ALS from a spiritual standpoint than he would otherwise have been without it. And that's what he said to me at Sonic. And I asked him to repeat it because I wasn't sure I heard him right. Yes. That's an incredible statement. It, it, it's staggering. Uh, it's amazing. And, um, and he lived it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, they weren't empty words yeah. by any stretch. Yeah. Uh, the U stand for uh, used by, by Jesus. Uh, Jesus used Paul mightily. And um, uh, Steve, I'll go ahead and yeah. drill down a little bit on that part if, sure, I, if please, I may. Sure, please do. Yeah. We're going to find, see, a lot of us, I mean, we didn't know Paul because we couldn't communicate with him. These guys knew Paul well. That's why I want you to hear. We're going to get a little glimpse into this guy that we would all see, but we, we really didn't know what. God was doing in his life. And I want and what we're going to get into in a little bit are the because Christ changed his heart, the deeds that came out of that. You're going to see that in a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, the, the change in his heart is is just worth mentioning also because, you know, at the time I described when Paul had it all going on, he was saved. He was doing Sunday school, yeah. teaching Sunday school, you know, Bible studies. Yeah. I, it, it, but he came to realize that there was a much deeper level of following Jesus that he hadn't been to. Yeah. And that's what the ALS brought him to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as um, uh, Paul being used by Jesus, um, I, I quoted two passages from, from Paul's book. And, uh, and I'll read those here. The first one is this. Whenever my wife is shaving me or brushing my teeth, my eyes usually wander to the mirror. I cannot think of a better word to describe myself than the word grotesque, especially if I have my shirt off. I resemble those pictures we have all seen of refugees who have endured severe starvation. All my muscles have deteriorated, leaving only skin and bones. I'm only five foot seven, but I've lost 50 pounds. All those muscles that I spent years developing in the gym are long gone. In addition, I've got a feeding tube inserted into my stomach. The skin surrounding this tube has a chronic smoldering infection that antibiotics won't clear up. I'm telling you, I'm grotesque. 
the chapter of the book that that passage came from is called I Am Beautiful. Okay, so you can kind of tell where that one must be going. With that as the backdrop, there's another passage from another chapter of the book that for some reason on Sunday when I was preparing my comments for the memorial service on Monday, the Holy Spirit brought me to. And it's this one. So, you know, with with that first passage as the backdrop, I want to illustrate how Paul taught me one of the greatest lessons of all of them that he taught me, which is how one gradually surrenders one's life to Christ. Okay? So juxtapose what he just said with this. He's speaking of um, of Joni Erickson Tata. She's been a quadriplegic for over 30 years now. When she goes out in public, she prays that God will use her wheelchair to remind people how fortunate they are and how small their problems are compared to others. So I decided to do the same thing. To grasp how difficult this is for me, you'd have to understand how hideous I look. Going out in public is embarrassing for me. Yet when I venture out, I always pray that God will use my appearance to help others. It works. I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and say that just the sight of me helps them tremendously. None of this would have happened if I hadn't had ALS. You know, as I, as I was thinking about those two passages just today, I was thinking they say a lot about Paul's priorities. He was subjecting himself, his ego, his self-image, and everything else to go out to impact others for the kingdom. And, and that was Paul's priority, not how he looked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it also speaks to um, not just his priorities, but it also talks, teaches us about perspective. Right? Because every time we would see Paul, yeah. we would realize, yeah. you know, the problems I have, what are they? That's right. I, I told you today about the guy I talked to that I believe is on, I'm going to be conservative. I think he's got his 15th cancer surgery coming up. It might be 18. And when he heard about Paul today, he told me, he said, whenever I get down, I think about Paul. And it puts my life in perspective. Just what Paul was talking about there. And Paul accepted that. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then out, out of, uh, we're talking about the good deeds. The Lord saved him and all this stuff. And, but, but then you, you helped Paul put a book together that's ministered to a lot of people that are in unbelievable circumstances. And that, that is quite a book because the... Because the depth of theology and biblical truth in that book. That would have never happened if Paul hadn't been in this situation and you were there to help him. Uh, Paul had no intention whatsoever of writing a book. Um, In fact, when he first started writing these um, essays, for lack of a better term, um, is mainly to keep his own sanity Um, and just organize his thoughts and keep applicable scriptures before him. And, um, uh, but with time, his, his vision expanded. He'd, he'd share those papers, these essays with other people. And, um, you know, uh, I was on that, yeah. on that list of recipients as well. You know, yeah. we started sharing one with, and uh, I, I said, Hey, would you like me to help clean up the, the papers, you know, align the margins? Cause it was difficult for him in his condition, you know, clean up the stray typo. And he said, yeah, you know, that'd be great. Yeah. And, uh, from there, the collaboration grew. And we would just work on these papers, and, uh, and it was fun to work on them with him because, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit just gave him some amazing things um, yeah. to share with us right. about intense suffering um, and, uh, and, and how the Lord works in that. And then um, and after book, some time... Go ahead. Oh, I, you're I, going where I was going. Okay. Go ahead. After some time, um, uh, some people said, you ought to pull all these together into a book, and... Um, and Paul and I kind of laughed off the whole idea, and uh, and we fought it for a while, and uh, but but the voices persisted, and so we said, all right, well, you know what the heck. Um, so we uh, we went back through the papers, tried to improve them to book level quality, if you will, yeah. and uh, and we self published the book, 
And uh, on the night of October 25th, um, we were in this room. Paul didn't know that the book was finally done at that point. Um, you know, he was, you know, bedridden, wheelchair ridden, and I would keep him apprised of the status. And um, just a couple days before that, the book was indeed uh, actually ready and all the copies printed. And so I called Steve and asked him if we could uh, spring the surprise on Paul that his book was ready. And so, as I say, on October 25th of 2006, in this room, Steve um, read uh, from the introduction of the book. And uh, we were sitting back there, like you just described, and uh, Paul's eyes were ablaze. He, he had absolutely no idea of what happened and what was happening. Yeah. But as soon as he recognized the words that you were reading, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and after you completed it, you just walked down that aisle and said, here, Paul, here's your book. Yeah, that was pretty neat. That was, that was a great moment. Great moment. Dave, thanks. Absolutely. Appreciate you, man. And your good deeds for your brother. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for climbing the roof there with Paul. Grabbing the ladder. And there are these other guys. Uh, uh, Richard. Uh, and we, they just gave me a time signal, so we're going we're gonna to have to watch time a little bit. But next thing I know, I see you coming to the study. Here's a mic for you. Um, I'd see Dave, and then you were showing up. How did you know Paul, may I ask? Uh, my daughter, my my oldest is Paul's youngest, yeah. and they were friends from Trinity Christian Academy. So yeah. when I first met Paul at a basketball uh, game with their little ones, I thought, what is this weird-looking guy? You know, his body was huge shoulders, you know. Because he was a weightlifter. Yeah. He worked out he all the time. weird, you know. Yeah. He had his scrubs on and... Yeah, and he had a really hick accent too. Did he? Yeah, huh. but then but then I learned to love him deeply. Yeah, because he's a man of God. Yeah, and so you were one of the guys that would help bring him here. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was an honor. You know, the way I looked at it is, uh, if I lost my way during the week, when I saw Paul on Wednesday nights, it centered me. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that something? All right. Let's and then and then King came along. Let's yep. get King up here. King, tell us. Uh, <laughs> You know, you shared a little bit the service about yeah, you guys' neighbors. Is that it? Yeah, I mean, he's, he was one of my partners. I've known Paul 18 years. In fact, when he came to interview, I got a call from the office manager and said, we have a doctor from out of town. He's here interviewing for the group. You want to come talk to him? So I just walked in cold, mm-hmm. never laid eyes on the guy before. Yeah. He's in a suit that's about two sizes too small. Uh, he's got this lopsided toothy grin. Yeah. Again, this hick accent. I'm flipping yeah. through his resume as I'm talking to him and his hobbies weightlifting and hunting and i'm thinking what kind of neanderthal is this this guy so yeah um you know and it's funny the uh you talk to patients they wouldn't remember who did their anesthesia but he's always a real nice guy big muscles yeah i'd say were you sure that wasn't me no no he's yeah big muscles but um never really big buddies but uh after his diagnosis he just lived a couple streets over so i kind of as i told everybody in the service kind of started to stop by and uh, he was a real soft sell. Yeah. Never, you know, just kind of started talking about, obviously, life came up a lot. Death came up a lot because we both yeah. uh, knew what was in store. And David was taking him to Bible study. I didn't know anything about it. And he gave me the call and asked if I could just give him a ride somewhere. And Because uh, and you said, hey, if I can do anything for yeah, you, let me yeah. know. Yeah, give me a call. And he did. And he, I said, sure, where do you want to go? And he said, well, there's Bible study. And. I grew up in the Catholic Church. We didn't do a lot of Bible studies. So yeah. I had to head on over to Barnes and Noble and look for a Bible, and uh, uh, it was pretty pretty uh, overwhelming the number of Bibles there. So I I got American. I got an American Standard, and I uh, got a big study Bible with maps and footnotes and stuff. I had no idea what was in store, but you were talking about Joshua at the time, and. Uh, he told me later, he said, yeah, I figured one or two of those sessions and you'd be hooked. But he had it all planned out. <laughs> Absolutely had it all planned out. Because no you didn't have a Bible. Didn't and you really Bible. didn't know the Lord. No, no. Had, he had planned it all out from the very beginning. Uh-huh. His body wasn't working, but his mind yeah. was. And, and I also want to let you know, and we'd come on Wednesdays and stuff. It was painful for him to sit. So it was a real effort for him to get here. Yeah. And just during the daytime, he could only get up for short periods of time. 
But when he was up on his computer, he was either answering emails from people, and usually well, they were had problems, mm-hmm. and he was trying to help them, mm-hmm. or he was reading the scripture. Mm-hmm. And when he was in bed, he was listening to one of your CDs or somebody else's, he was listening to scripture. Mm. And you, you would think that after a while, he'd just he'd get tired of that. Mm-hmm. He never stopped. And even the day before he died, he had his mom reading him the scripture. Mm. So he never stopped mm. the, you know, mm. looking for the truth. Yeah. One more thing I want to share to you. And, and Dave alluded to this, <clears throat> very self-conscious about his appearance. Mm-hmm. He would go to his daughter's sporting events because he wanted to be there for them for that. And occasionally he'd let us take him to the movies because it was dark and we could sneak him up the elevator and we could yeah. sit up in the balcony where it was dark. He told me there was only one place that he really felt comfortable being in public and never gave a second thought about his appearance, and that was here on Wednesday nights. Hmm. That's great. Uh, he just figured, these guys have been here. They've seen me sure. from the beginning to the end. They don't even give me a second thought when they walk in. They're just here to sure. hear the truth. That's great. And so many of these guys are yeah. just ugly. They are. Yeah. And yeah, he felt like I'm no yeah, He was just among are. peers. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So. Okay. So. Thanks, King. Thanks for being a good brother. Yeah. Larry. Yeah. And we got Larry. Larry was telling me his story the other day as King was after the service, uh, the memorial service. We're just standing over there by the punch bowl and and you kind of blew me away because i remember you being one of the guys and then you told me something i didn't know about how you got in here yeah it was really a strange situation i'd known paul for a while we were uh another doctor yeah we're practicing physicians together and uh the first day i met paul spent time talking with him and and i knew that i'd met a guy that uh was just very very special uh and we we kicked off a friendship it was kind of interesting he was a believer i was not I was an atheist, but I believed that the world was out there for me to take, and that's what we did together. We loved to get out and fly fish. We've traveled all over in this plane. We've hunted. We've gone to some great exotic places, and uh, I just felt like every every opportunity I needed to take. And uh, when he when I found out that he had Lou Gehrig's disease, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. I was blown away, and I. I, I didn't know what to do, so I go over to see Paul, and I spend some time with him. And at that particular time in my life, I was going through some physical problems as well mm-hmm. and was very down about those. And uh, he, was, he told me that Steve Farrar was in town, and that I thought, well, Steve Farrar, who? You know, yeah, who? Uh, and I, uh, he said, well, he's, he's teaching up there at Stonebriar, yeah. uh, men's group on Wednesday nights. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, you know, I just can't get up there. Now, at this point, realize he had three guys bringing him up here, okay? <laughs> that was happening. And he said, you know, I, I can't get up there by myself. And but I you said, had offered anything I can do. Anything I can yeah. do for you, sure, uh-huh. I'll take you up there. And well, I you said, took the bait, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I did, hook, line, and sinker. And I, you know, it was so funny because I was so nervous to come up here. I thought, an hour and a half? Yeah. What am I going to do for an hour and a half? Yeah. And he said, well, you can sit here. Yeah. Well, I, well, I did sit here. And uh, what I found that, I, that happened for me is I listened. And Paul and I would talk a lot about what, what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. We were in Joshua at that time. I, don't, mm-hmm. I know a lot of you guys were here during that. Mm-hmm. But suddenly something started making sense to me that had never made sense to me. I said, this old history, what does it have to do with anything? Well, it had a lot to do with a lot of things that had happened. None of this was coincidence. And in spending time with Paul, uh, Paul mm-hmm. David Turtletop, mm-hmm. and, and uh, coming here to listen to you, I came to the Lord. Is that I came not to the Lord. And it has great? changed my life. And to make this thing even crazier, and I think this is what Steve alluded to, I have moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, practicing up there. I'm teaching at the university. Mm-hmm. And the craziest thing is I am now surrounded by Muslims and Hindus. These are the people I work with Every day, and about a year ago, I brought one of my partners, uh, actually a, a communist lady from Romania, to the Lord for the first time. She's on fire. So it's been a great thing. And, and how how long ago was it that you were an atheist? I mean, how long ago? Oh gosh, let's see. It has to be uh, maybe. Uh, I'm trying to look back now. Uh, seven, eight, nine years ago. Yeah. 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 And I'd been I'd been that way for a long time. Yeah. Science had proven to me that there was no God. Yeah. 
But God used Paul. God and used what this. He'd done in Paul's ball. life. Yeah, this right. broken guy. And he kind of finaled you in here. And you're helping him out doing good deeds. And here I am. Here you are. God bless you, man. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Appreciate you, Larry. We're running out of time. I'm going to tell, I just met Ken. Ken told me, just stand, Ken, say hi to these guys. Ken's a pilot, also a physician, right? Yeah, I'm a surgeon. You're a surgeon. And tell him, I asked you, I said, well, you, you, you said you and Paul would fly and do all that. And then you said, the, I said, do you have a plane? You said, not anymore. Real quick, tell them that. Paul and I flew together. We owned a couple of planes together, uh, and then we split off. We both went double in twin engines, and uh, we bought our separate planes. But the last time I flew my plane was the night before I sold it uh, for reasons that are unrelated. But uh, I was able to persuade him to go flying with me. We had a delightful time. That was his last That was his time. last flight. Yeah. Uh, he'd, he'd already given up flying because he was already well into his disease, mm -hmm. but he was able to at least get in the plane, and I took mm -hmm. him up, and we, mm -hmm. we talked and flew together. Uh, and it was one of the nicest flights I've ever had, and I That's have not great. flown since either. Is that right? Yeah. Thank you for being a good friend. Yeah, appreciate that. And then Greg. Greg, Greg uh, <laughs> this is very interesting. Another good buddy of, of Paul's, and uh, I'll let you tell the story here. Well, I, uh, I first met Paul in 1998. Our, our uh, girls played soccer together, so we met on the soccer fields. And I had just finished, literally, the year before reading the Bible for the first time. And um, I didn't really read it because I expected great things or any changes in my life. I'm kind of a type A guy, so I decided it'd be another notch in the belt to read through that big, thick book all in one year. Um, but a funny thing happened along the way. You know, as I read through it during the course of the year, my eyes uh, began to be opened and the scales came off of my eyes. And so, uh, so I began to see the world differently. And it was right about that time that Paul and I were developing this relationship. And the first time that he and I really got to spend some time together was uh, in the summer of 99. We had gotten uh, tickets for our two girls to go to the World Cup. And the World Cup was being played out in the Rose Bowl. So as the tournament progressed, in fact, at one point, the women were way behind. The U.S. women were way behind. And we thought we were going to wind up seeing, you know, Romania play Czechoslovakia or something like that. But we wound up having the women in the finals. And um, so we flew to uh, Long Beach. And on that flight, Paul and I spent the whole time just talking about faith and death because he was a year into the uh, disease and uh, so we really got to know each other on the three-hour flight uh, out to California and back and got to be close friends. Huh. Um, the reason for the cup, uh, Paul had a great sense of humor and to Steve's point earlier tonight talking about guys and you don't have to be a wuss being a Christian as you heard some of these other guys talk about, Paul was a big guy. I mean, he, he was a stud. He was big. He was built. He was tough. He hunted. He gutted animals with a knife. You know, he was, he was a man's man. Um, but he was also very funny. Paul had a great sense of humor. And uh, the other day I shared a few of the stories with, um, with the people that were at the memorial service. But the one story that I wanted to share tonight and the reason for the cup is late in the disease over the past couple of years, Paul decided it would be kind of fun to start having a competition for all the crazy things that happen in each one of our lives, all the goofy stuff that happens, vacations gone awry, kids, fender benders, you name it. We've all got stories like that. And he said, you know, we need a competition. We need a competition for the junk. So we laughed a little bit, and we decided the competition would take on the spirit of the, uh, the America's Cup sailing race. So, you know, I said, well, if we're going to do that, you know, we need a trophy. We need a real trophy, and it's, it's got to be a trophy that gets passed around to whoever wins the competition. So we were doing great with our idea and everything, but we were stuck on the name for the cup. So we sat there one night talking about several names, and all of a sudden I saw Paul break out into this big grin, and uh, his eyes were twinkling, and he had this big grin, and he turned 
to his computer and began to type as he did the words that would be on this cup. And so we actually had this cup made. If I'll let you hold this. Sure. Turn this around. I know you can't all see that, but that says crap cup. <laughs> so the name of the competition became the crap cup. And whoever had the most crap going on in their life got to take the cup home and hang on to it for a while. So I think that was an insight into the kind of humor and sense of humor that Paul maintained right up to uh, his last day. And again, it takes a real man to maintain yeah. a sense of humor when things yeah. aren't going your way. Yeah, it sure so, is, uh, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Go ahead and do what? Um, Along the way, we had some shirts made for the book that, uh, that Dave and Paul worked on, and um, we had passed out these shirts to several of us that were involved in the book, but we wanted to take tonight as an opportunity to uh, present one to, um, to Steve, who was oh. also involved. Thanks. Hold that up. Wow. It says, uh, change in the flight plan on the front, and there's a copy of the, uh, the book jacket on the back. Hey, thanks so, so much. So you're in the club. Greg, that's great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for everything, man. So these are the four or five guys that got Paul up on the roof and kicked it in and made sure every week he could hear the word of Jesus. And I, I didn't know. I, I just figured all these guys were Christians. I mean, I'd see them come in. Why else would they come? But you know what struck me about Paul? And, and this is what I want to close with. Uh, what struck me about Paul is that he was in a position, he couldn't go out and do the works he used to do. But even when he was immobilized, you know what? He knew these guys needed the Lord. He used to be right where they were. So what did he do? He tweaked them. <laughs> and he got them in here. And uh, their lives have been changed. And Paul is in the presence of Jesus. And he's whole. Isn't that great? He's got some, I, I'd never met his family. He's got three beautiful girls. And uh, he hasn't been able to hold them in years. Next time they see their dad, he's going to run and hold them. Isn't that great? God's a good God, isn't he, guys? Do you see? Do you see, because he changed Paul's life, the deeds that came out? That's what I want you to get tonight. Let's stand. And as you stand, be grateful that you can. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your tender mercies. We thank you that Paul is, is well. He's not prisoned anymore. We rejoice in that. It's not a myth, it's a fact. Because... Uh, you rose from the dead because of your power. I pray for the guys and circumstances in the prisons tonight. Prisons of circumstances, prisons of health, prisons of whatever it may be. You'll encourage them. I pray for Paul's family. For Deanne and the girls, give them precisely what they need. Thank you that they know, that they know they'll see him again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.